0: Warning, the following podcast has been classified as insanely lucrative. Listener discretion is advised.
1: Don't buy iPhones, don't buy Nike shoes, don't buy Xbox controllers. You know, those companies control their supply chain quite well. Yeah.
0: Your attention, please. please. Listening to the AMPM podcast may cause recurring revenue streams and unfair, unfair advantages over your competitors. Other side effects may include fatter wallets, fired bosses, and longer vacations. Listen at your own risk. Here's your host, seven-figure entrepreneur and online marketing madman, Manny Coates. Manny Coates.
2: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the AM, PM podcast. My name is Manny Coates, and I will be your host. And this is the show where we discuss how to generate recurring revenue streams 24 hours per day during the AM and the PM, hence the name of the show. Get it? AM, PM podcast as a matter of fact i was just watching that movie into the woods i know it's not quite brand new but i hadn't seen it and it was pretty interesting how they mixed jack and the beanstalk and rapunzel and cinderella and who was the other one little red riding hood and during the two hours that it took to watch that movie i was making money how cool is that pretty cool i think I am here with Peter Zaff from Global Sources, and it is my pleasure to introduce him and have him talk to you guys about everything sourcing and imported related. Peter, how are you doing today? Great, Manny. Thanks so much for having me on today. That's my pleasure. I'd like to ask, um, I mean, a lot of people don't know who you are or know about your company. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and who Global Sources is?
1: Sure. No, I've been with Global Sources for, gosh, almost 15 years now. Uh, We help manufacturers and overseas buyers, importers, wholesalers, and retailers find each other. Uh, We run a sourcing site, globalsources.com. Probably our main online competitor is Alibaba. We also run trade shows. Uh, We run three sets of shows twice a year, April and October every year here in Hong Kong. And we'll have, I don't know, twenty or 30,000
2: buyers coming to the show, and we'll have 3,000 booths of exhibitors at each of the shows. Awesome. That sounds really cool. So I have a very important question to ask you. Fire away. What is your favorite and least favorite chewing gum flavors? Gosh, I haven't like chewed gum for
1: about 20 years. So my favorite is Juicy Fruit. I don't know. Do they even still sell Juicy Fruit? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. I'm not sure. I think they do. Uh, my least favorite is probably any kind of licorice flavored gum.
2: Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, that's, those are terrible. <laughs> All right. Cool, cool. So I wanted to ask you, I'm curious, uh, beyond the company Global Sources, do you also sell on Amazon?
1: Yeah, so at Global Sources, we have a few suppliers that are that we're experimenting with. They want to launch their own branded products. So we're helping w- with their branded products, uh, getting them sold on Amazon. So we've got a little bit of experience uh, selling on Amazon from there.
2: Okay, great. So um, almost everybody that listens to our podcast knows about Alibaba. And, and we we always recommend people check them out. It's, it's kind of a, the, the go-to um, for, for FBA. But um, I've heard about you guys, Global Sources. I'd like to know what sets you guys apart. Um, how are you guys similar and how are you different from Alibaba?
1: Sure. I guess in terms of similarities, we're, we're, we're both online directories of products from mainly China manufacturers. Um, in terms of differences, what folks that use our site have told us is, one, uh, we have a mix of companies that has more factories and fewer trading companies on global sources. Uh, second, as a result of the fact that there are more factories, and especially the factories that are developing their own designs, uh, there are more innovative products on global sources, although honestly, you know the bar is not that high with the other uh, manufacturers. Uh, but then the third thing is a lot of the suppliers that you see on our site, you can also meet
2: face-to-face at our trade shows.
1: Um, so those are some of the differences. You know, what I would encourage uh, buyers to do is uh, check both or check all the online sites when you're doing sourcing.
2: Okay, cool. And they can check out your site at globalsources.com. Is that correct? Uh, that's right. globalsources.com. Yep. Okay, cool, cool. And then what, let's talk about some of the, the sourcing details. Um, a lot of people ask, at least on our, our Facebook group, they want to know, what seems to be a typical deposit when they're ordering for the first time uh, with a supplier. And almost everybody says 30%. Is that pretty standard with suppliers? Is that pretty standard with your company as well?
1: Yeah, no, I think it's pretty standard. Again, our company, we're not, we don't manufacture or sell, we're just kind of an online directory or a trade show. But what we see in the industry is, yeah, 30% is pretty standard for a deposit. Okay, all
2: right, cool. And do you feel like a seller should, or somebody like us, an FBA seller, should use an inspection company every time they place um, subsequent orders with suppliers, even if it's, for example, their 10th order, they've been doing it forever with this, with these guys?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I was talking about that with another guy a few days ago. You know, I think it, it's really a question of risk tolerance. Um, here's some advantages to doing an inspection every time. First, the supplier will continue um, taking po- both your orders and the quality of your orders more seriously if he knows there's going to be an inspection every time, right? He's not going to, he's less likely to try to cut corners. The second thing is you got to remember there are a lot of things that can happen on the supplier side, a new salesperson, a new QC lead, new employees on the factory line, new suppliers of components and all of those changes. I mean, you don't know that they're happening and an inspection helps confirm that none of those types of changes has resulted in a change in the level of quality that you're getting. So I think it's a question of risk tolerance for me personally, I would say, yeah, do an inspection every time.
2: Okay. And one of the things that I'm doing now with, um, with some of my suppliers is if the inspection fails, I'm I'm asking them to put a clause in uh, the order that says that they'll actually reimburse me for the second time the inspector goes out. Have you seen, I mean, is, is this something that other people are doing? Is it standard? I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Good
1: question. I, I actually don't know if it's standard. I think it's a good idea. Um, I've talked to people about doing that also. Um, I was talking to Ashish Shish Mango over IMX sourcing about this, and he said, um, "Yes, he does this as a standard in his contracts," which is was interesting. But then he said, um, "In the majority of cases, when it comes time for the supplier to pay for that, they don't pay." So you know, you're kind of getting more leverage. But keep in mind, it's China, and everything's negotiable, and you may or may not actually get the supplier to pay for that. Mm -hmm. Uh, But you end up having more leverage
2: to say, "Hey, but you said you would." Right. So what I mean, what what can you do if the supplier actually refuses? you know, it's a business decision. Um,
1: are you still going to be profitable on the order? Are you going to the quality you want? Do you want to do reorders with the supplier? I mean, it's all negotiable. Um, if the supplier refuses, if they're a good supplier, you're getting good quality product and they're going to improve, you know, fine, pay it. You're still going to make money.
2: Right. I mean, what are your thoughts on uh, when you're using an inspection company on what qualifies as a pass and what qualifies as a fail if you were to order? Yeah, yeah.
1: So that, that's a really hard one. So coming back to your question of the thir- uh, 30% deposit, if we go back a step, Mm-hmm. You know, uh, most folks will be getting samples from multiple suppliers. When you get your samples, you should be looking at them closely and putting together kind of all the things you don't like about them. So you start having an objective, and, and that's the basis for your objective um, QC list. The, and you want it to be as objective as possible. And then on that list, if you're a little bit more advanced, you want to indicate which failures are going to be critical, which are major and which are minor. hmm I don't think that there's, you know, because products vary so much that there's a specific checklist. That being said, I think there's three types of things you want to have on your checklist. The first is function. Does the product work? If it doesn't work, that's a critical failure and it's a fail. Second is appearance. Appearance is interesting because a lot of the suppliers get components from other suppliers, so they may not be able to control the quality of appearance, like small scratches in the product, for instance. the third thing that you want is around packaging and logistics issues, like uh, weight of cartons, size of cartons, uh, printing on the cartons. So you want to cover those three areas in your QC criteria. Now, interestingly, um, AsiaInspection.com, one of the inspection companies, if you register for their site, they do have checklists for about 1,000 products, which you can use as a start for your QC checklist. I'd say only as a start because the ones that I've seen you know, need extra work, uh, but it's, an, it, they're interesting from the perspective of being a good start.
2: Okay. And this is a, a checklist
1: that somebody can go online and download? That's right. It's asiainspection.com. You have to register for the site. And then uh, I don't remember which menu choice it is once you're uh, registered. Okay.
2: All right. Well, let me ask you this. Um, so you, let's say you find a supplier. Okay. You, you've gone through the, uh, the samples, you've narrowed it down to somebody and you're like, okay, I'm going to go with these guys. Um, what are your thoughts on getting a, uh, an NDA? Uh, with one of these guys or some kind of contract.
1: Yeah. And again, this is going to, everybody's got a different opinion on this. So ask like 10 other people also. (laughs) But the first thing is you don't really want an NDA. Uh, You can read this up on the China law blog.com. But an NDA is that they're not, that the supplier is not going to disclose something to somebody else, but you're actually not concerned about them disclosing something to somebody else. You're concerned about them developing it themselves and manufacturing it themselves. Mm. So in China, what you really want is an NNN which means on, on non-disclosure, non-circumvent, non-use, um, if I remember what the three Ns stand for. So that's the first thing. Then the second question is, well, when do you actually need an NNN? Well, if you're using a supplier-designed product, probably not. Um, if, it, if you're doing a crowdfunding project and you've got a lot of IP that you need protected, then you probably do need an, an NNN and some other um, contracts. Uh, everything in between is kind of gray. You know, If you're doing a thicker yoga mat, do you need an NDA or an NNN? Probably not because any other supplier could just copy that very easily. So it kind of comes down to how much IP you have, which kind of relates to, is it, are you using a supplier design, kind of an easy design for anybody to copy that has no IP protection around it, or, you know, something that's harder for somebody else to copy that you've put some IP protection around with the, with the stuff that's harder to copy that you're trying to protect the IP on. um, Then I'd start looking at some of the, the NNN and other uh, contracts.
2: Okay. All right. So if, a comp- if that company decides to compete with you and sell on Amazon and you had that in place, um, I mean, is there anything you can do? Can you really enforce it when the supplier's in China? Oh, that's a great question. So the
1: first thing is that in order to enforce it in China, you want to make it um, either Chinese language or bilingual. If it's English language only, then the courts have to go through an extra step of interpreting it. One. Two, um, use a lawyer that, you, you, that knows China law. Um, US law is much different than China law. So if you get a US lawyer to draft it and then get it um, translated, it's probably not going to work. Mm -hmm. Um, And three, yes, you can win in China courts, especially if the contract is in Chinese, you have a Chinese lawyer write it that understands how China law works, which then means you probably have the right kind of damage clauses in it uh, to get a payout when that happens.
2: Okay. So it sounds like that would be a pretty serious thing. So you'd probably only want to do that if, if I guess, if you were at a certain threshold financially uh, with your product. It's not like somebody's going to be making a thousand dollars a month and say, you know what, I'm going after these guys. It's for the big guys. Yeah. No. I mean, just first the the cost of getting the agreements in place to
1: get that China lawyer. Um, that's probably going to be at least a few thousand dollars. Um, and then uh, pursuing it in court is, you know, also expensive.
2: Okay. Going back to your company and Alibaba, um, I noticed, I, I haven't been to, um, to your site yet to check things out, so my reference is Alibaba, and you can tell me what you guys have as well. But um, on there, they have suppliers and they have trade companies. Do you guys have the same thing? Do you have trade companies uh, at your site?
1: Well, you know, trade companies is an interesting word. Um, definitely there are manufacturers, and then there are a lot of whatever you wanna call it, traders, agents, uh, There's uh, wholesalers, whatever. Mm-hmm. On the Global Sources site, if you go look at the uh, business registration information, you can see how the company has registered themselves. And if they have a word like produce or manufacture, um, then they're a factory. And also, if they have a higher paid up capital, um, then they're also a factory because a factory needs to buy equipment um, where a service company doesn't. So those are two ways to identify whether a company is a factory. When talking to folks that use our site, they say that a higher percentage of the companies listed on global sources are factories as compared to agents or trading companies or other intermediaries. Um, So we have both, but I think the mix is a lot different.
2: Okay. What um, a lot of people are confused about trade companies versus supplier, you know, the factories. What are your thoughts on the trade companies and are there advantages or disadvantages to either? Yeah,
1: there are definitely advantages, Um, but I think in my personal opinion, what you want is transparency. So in my personal opinion, the first thing that you want, if you have the right size, is to go direct to the factory. But as soon as people go direct to the factory, then they say, oh, wow, this is hard. Um, I need somebody on the ground to help me. And that's where either a trading company or an agent um, comes in. There are plenty of third-party companies that will provide kind of that kind of service. The question is, how do they do it? Are they going to bill you hourly? Are they going to bill you a fixed fee? Are they going to get a kickback from the manufacturer? You know, those are the more difficult questions. Now, on our site, we tend to have mostly manufacturers and uh, some trading companies. We don't really have
2: agents on our site. Let's talk about that because I haven't actually used an agent. When would it be a good idea to actually use an agent versus going to the suppliers yourself?
1: Yeah. So we had one of the speakers at our Smart China Sourcing Summit, which we haven't talked about yet, uh, was Chris Thomas, who did a, a crowdfunded project. Uh, they're kind of earmuffs for when you're sleeping so that this outside sound doesn't bother you. hmm and, what he f- and he was living in Australia and then Hong Kong. And what he found is he was having trouble because he needed you know, different cut, different materials. He, he needed the, the factory to do a lot of things. So he found an agent to work with um, that could help him with some of the more complicated things that understood what he wanted to do and could communicate uh, with the, the manufacturer of the factory to do that. So certainly as products get more complicated, uh, that would definitely be an area where say a, a local expert or somebody with some kind of expertise, whether it be expertise in a particular product or expertise in the sourcing process um, can be helpful.
2: Okay. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So if I'm looking for somebody, if I want to get an agent, um, you mentioned sometimes they might be hourly, they might have fees, they might get, a, uh, I guess, a commission from the factory. What, what is typical? I mean, what, what can I expect to pay, I guess, if I'm looking for somebody? And would you go after the hourly guy or would you go after a fee guy or what would you do?
1: Yeah, the uh, trading companies historically, and these would be higher volume guys, you know, would work with overseas retailers. I think they work on, I don't know, four to 8% uh, margins. Um, so that that's what they would um, charge. I've seen a lot of different models because the Amazon private label sellers tend to have smaller product volumes, especially when they start. Um, so a, a fixed fee charge is more typical. Um, some of the companies and uh, a number of these guys were speaking at our show uh, that provide this kind of service include, I mean, if you don't mind my listing them, no. Uh, import dojo, uh, guided imports, uh, IMEX Sourcing and Passage Maker. Um, I've also heard folks go to Upwork and, you know, just put up a request for, uh, you know, a source in person. I think, you know, the first four are going to be a little bit, they're entrepreneurial, but they're more corporate, uh, Western owned. If you go
2: the Upwork route, well, you're rolling the dice in a different way. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Upwork, it's, it can be tricky. We've got a lot of hours logged on there. But um, so I guess I'm curious, uh, have you seen price ranges of, of what it would cost for an agent? I mean, if somebody's listening right now, should they expect it's going to be you know a few hundred dollars, or are we talking about thousands of dollars, or how does it normally work?
1: Again, I think it depends on how much work is being done. So, if I remember correctly, guided imports um, charges about a thousand dollars U.S. I think that's an end-to-end process. They get the samples, they review the samples, they put together the QC guide, um, they help get the goods, they, they coordinate getting the goods shipped. I think they also do the uh, product inspection. Right. So that's end to end. Um, Other companies like Import Dojo, I think will have more a la carte services. So they will, if you just want them to identify a few suppliers, um, they'll do that for, I don't know, a hundred bucks. So there there really isn't a standard right now, especially when it comes to servicing this new breed of Amazon PL sellers.
2: Okay. That's good. It's good to know. So let's talk about pricing. I I would say that that is probably one of the top things people always ask is how to negotiate with their Chinese suppliers, right? And sometimes there's a, I guess there's a cultural rift between say Americans and, and the Chinese. And with a lot of the uh, the listeners we have, they say, well, they just don't know when to go lower or when to say no to a price. Can you give us your feedback or your thoughts on, I guess, best practices when negotiating with the Chinese?
1: Yeah. So I'll, I'll share what I heard from the larger retailers because I mean, we've been in business for 40 years. So historically, our customers have been larger retailers, including both online at the trade shows. And this is what, um, this is what they tend to do. So they'll do one of two things. Um, and one of these strategies, Amazon, uh, PL sellers can use, and that is just get multiple quotes from multiple suppliers, you know, very, be very clear on your requirements, um, including your know, products, features and functions, any regulatory and safety compliance requirements, get the quotes. And then effectively, you're playing them off against each other. Hey, I really like um, you a lot. You've been very communicative. I appreciate the support. Unfortunately, your pricing isn't as competitive as I'm getting from someplace else. You know, can you be more competitive on pricing? And that way, you know, you at least have a basis for the negotiation, right? Yeah. As opposed to just randomly saying, oh, I think this price is too high.
2: <laughs> so how, how do you know, though, when let's say you've got three prices and they're, you've got the lowest priced one, let's say, um, for whatever reason, they're, they're undercutting the other guys. Um, how do you know that's a good price though, if it's a product that you've never ordered before?
1: Um, I mean, if you, at the end of the day, if you're gonna make money, that's good. But let me then get to the second way of doing it, which is gonna be a little bit more difficult for Amazon PL sellers. And that's to do bottom-up pricing. Um, so what I mean by that is, um, get the cost of the raw materials and components, um, figure out labor costs to assemble or manufacture, um, add some margin for overhead and factory profit and FOB-related costs if you're buying FOB, and then you know build up what the correct price is. And this is the other approach that a lot of retailers Take, uh, but this is going to be harder for Amazon sellers because you have to do more legwork to figure all of that out.
2: Yeah, it sounds like there's a lot of stuff there for sure. So, okay. Um, so, we talked about uh, negotiating a little bit. Um, any other best practices um, that you would want to recommend to listeners when working with uh, Chinese suppliers?
1: Um, yes. So, we started touching on this earlier, and it's not just working with China suppliers, it's about managing the risk of your order process. Working at global sources, we sometimes see uh, buyers come back and complain about an order or a relationship they have with the supplier. So in looking at those complaints, uh, we see a lot of the complaints are due to what we call um, commercial disputes. And the commercial disputes are generally because there was lack of clarity or communication about requirements between the two parties. So if that's going to be the cause of most problems, then the question is, what steps can you take to avoid those problems? And it comes down to communication and clarity of requirements. So like I was starting to say earlier, the first thing is get samples, use the samples to put together your QC criteria, then include the QC criteria with the purchase order and the supplier agree to both the purchase order and the QC criteria. Now, if the supplier, and I've seen this happen before, tells you at this point, I cannot meet those QC criteria, good. I mean, you haven't paid the 30%, you know, you need to go find another supplier. And suppliers will sometimes do this because your QC criteria might say, for example, I don't want any, you know, any blemishes at all on this particular component. And the supplier will say, look, I don't manufacture this particular component. I source it on the open market and I can't get the level of quality that you want from the suppliers that I source it from. So I, I can't meet those QC criteria. So we you know, may need to part ways at this point. Then after the suppliers agreed to both the purchase order and the QC terms and conditions and also say, hey, and I'm going to get this inspected by a third party inspection company before it ships. Right. So supplier knows everything up front. Supplier knows you're taking quality seriously. Then pay your 30% after suppliers agreed to all of that. After the supplier's manufactured, then get that third party inspection done to the QC criteria you provided up front. Everybody's very clear on what's required uh, from that order for it to pass. And upon passing the inspection, then pay the remaining 70%. Our estimate is that at least 80% of the problems or commercial disputes we see between buyers and suppliers would be solved just by following this process.
2: Okay, yeah, that's really good information. So if you have this QC criteria, I mean, okay, the way I look at it is that if I'm dealing with a supplier, they're going to give me their best product they don't want to give me something that's garbage because they they want to have my repeat business but you're saying if you don't have that qc criteria they're not going to do that they're just going to try to i guess get, give you the lowest quality products so that they can make the most money
1: well the thing is the definition of um good quality at a particular price is different in different markets so you know what constitutes good quality in, say some of the middle eastern markets versus what constitutes good quality in japan are Know quite different, and the US would be closer to the Japan side of that spectrum than the Middle Eastern side of that spectrum. So the supplier may just not know, which is why it's important to clearly communicate up front what you expect in terms of quality.
2: So, is that something that you should ask them though? Um, you know, is your market more for the Middle East, or what, what are your major markets? I think that's a great question to
1: ask. I would recommend asking that every time because the thing is, you know, suppliers that manufacture for, say, some of the Middle Eastern markets, or they target. Kind of the low price markets, um, they've got a whole supply chain and internal mentality. You know the components they source, the QC processes they have that would need to be changed or upgraded um, if you want a different level of quality, and that's hard to do, especially for you know an entrepreneurial Amazon one-person company PL seller.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Would you walk away from anybody that, or from a company that? serves a specific market, or would you at least give them a chance?
1: If I have a choice between two and one serves markets uh, closer to the one that I'm targeting, I would go with the one that's closer. I mean, there would be cases if you have a super unique product and you can't find anybody else, um, yeah, i give them a chance. But you know, in most cases, I try to find someone that has familiarity with the level of quality that you're looking for.
2: And you mentioned Japan is one that's pretty popular. Well, no, I, I just meant on the high side. In,
1: in terms of the scale of level of quality, um, the manufacturers will generally tell you Japan is at the super, super high end. Maybe Germany and Korea are high. Uh, the US is maybe above average. The different European countries, maybe above average. And then Middle Eastern countries, India, Pakistan, you know, maybe lower than average. All right, cool, cool.
2: So, if you tell them, let's say you're getting ready to do your 30% and you tell them that you're going to have an inspector come out to inspect everything before they ship anything. The inspector's coming out prior to you paying the final 70%. Is that correct? Correct. And do you feel that the inspection, when you tell them that you're going to have an inspector go out, do they typically do better work than they might otherwise if you don't have an inspector coming out? Have you seen that? Well, I don't, I don't know if I'd use the word typically,
1: uh, but certainly you're putting the supplier on notice that you take QC seriously. and that. Can never hurt. Right. So, you know, a lot of it is about how the signals you're giving the supplier. So, by including QC criteria up front, saying you're going to get that third party inspection done, doing the third party inspection, you know, this, the supplier's receiving signals that, yeah, you really care about quality. And I feel there's a reasonable chance that they're going to take quality more seriously for your order. Okay.
2: So, a lot of the listeners are already working with Alibaba and based on recommendations, they're using um, trade assurance. If they go to global sources, um, I'm sure you've got a different setup. How do you recommend buyers protect themselves when dealing with with new factories?
1: Yeah, we don't currently have an offering like trade assurance, and trade trade assurance is kind of insurance for when things go wrong, which isn't you know it's kind of maybe it's a safety net, but it's not really what you want. You you can't turn your money into something. You have to go collect on insurance, and you know whether it's medical insurance or car insurance or any kind of insurance, you know, my experience is it's always painful to collect on. So we're, we're much more focused on one, making sure that the manufacturers or suppliers are good and going to give the uh, buyer a good experience. And second, uh, doing things like we just talked about, which is trying to educate the community on, hey, you've, you're, you've got two different cultures working with each other. You have a lot of new pe- people that are new to these business processes. How do you go through these business processes in a way that enables uh, both sides to understand the expectations and? sides to then meet those expectations so that both sides can have a successful order or purchase.
2: Right. That makes sense. What do you think are some of the things that most FBA private labelers just, they don't know about um, when dealing with the Chinese?
1: an Interesting question. So the first one, and this is uh, Ashish at our Smart China conference said this, the first thing is good factories have plenty of business and probably don't need your business. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. (laughs) So treat them well. You know, the the guys that are chasing you, I'm not going to say yes or no, but uh, good factories do not have excess capacity and you you may have to convince them to work for you. And those may be the guys that you want to work with. So, you know, don't assume that they're hungry for your 1000 piece order.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That would make sense. Okay. Are there? Um, I know we're going to be jumping into freight forwarding here shortly, but um, any final strategic issues you think sellers should be thinking about?
1: Yeah, you know, we were talking about this before we started, and that, and one of the things that we said was. I mean, you were talking about supply chain costs and, you know, a year, a couple of years ago on Amazon, the issue was you're competing for the buy box. So everybody wanted to go private label so they could own the buy box, which is great. But now you have 10 people selling or 40 people selling the same thing, just not the same buy box, just 40 different results in, in the search results. Uh-huh. And you, you start wondering, you know, who's going to win that long-term, you know, are 40 people really going to survive in as these situations get more mature, it tends to be the people that either have the uh, better supply chain costs you know, or better marketing or a combination of the two that end up winning. So, Because the better supply chain costs mean that you, means that you can allocate either more money to profit, you can price lower and still be profitable, or allocate more money to marketing. So then the question is, well, how are you going to optimize your supply chain costs you know, after we get out of this um, uh, wild west land grab mentality and get into a more mature You know, level sales mentality. And there's a number of things. I mean, the first thing is uh, you want to get your unit costs as as low as possible, which probably means ordering in larger volumes, depending on your size of your product, you may end up ordering it container quantities. Um, Second is your shipping costs because for a lot of, and again, this varies from product to product, uh, but you may want to start looking at ocean shipping versus air shipping because for some products that can be a difference of a few dollars per unit. There are other little things like the size of the packaging so that you can get more units in the container, shipping direct to FBA so that you don't have, so you get goods to FBA faster, you know, rather than shipping them to yourself for a reinspection. You know, all of those types of supply chain things will enable you to have a lower cost, which enables you to compete for longer and make money for longer with your product. I mean, those are some of the strategic issues that I think people will be thinking about next.
2: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Cool, cool. So, very serious question here before we get into freight forwarding. Why do the Chinese always call me deer?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a funny one. And uh, I, the answer <laughs> is, I don't know. And you know what? I think I will have to ask when I go to the trade show today, I'll ask some of the suppliers that. <laughs> my, my guess is somewhere that they're just taught to do that. Okay,
2: good, good. I'm not the only one then. Perfect. No, no, you're not the only one. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, freight forwarding. This this has me completely baffled. Um, I do it. Um, but I outsource it completely, and so I, I know almost nothing about it. So I wanted to get an expert on. We, we have questions about this all the time on our, our Facebook group, and yeah, I just don't know how to answer some of the stuff. So let's talk about the basics first. Um, we've covered FOB. In fact, if you wanna talk about the acronyms here and, and some of the popular ones, uh, that'd be fantastic. Okay,
1: so first of all, use the word expert. Uh, please, please don't call me an expert. <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, I, have, I have experience in some of this stuff and I can share
1: based on my experience, but I always get worried with this stuff when, when people call themselves experts. And I'll, I'll try to get all of these acronyms right. But um, FOB is probably the one that the, um, the audience needs to know the most or the best, especially for ocean shipping. And FOB usually means that you're taking legal possession of the products after, I think it's after they cross the rail of the ship. Um, so one, once the goods are on the ship, you have legal possession. That's what FOB means. Okay. And I think that stands for freight on board, also frequently used term is EXW, XWorks. works And that means you take legal possession of the goods um, after they leave or when they leave the factory gate. So there's a couple differences between the two. With um, FOB, the supplier is paying for getting the goods shipped from the factory to the port. And the supplier is generally, this gets a little bit more complicated, is generally taking responsibility for the export paperwork and ensuring that export licenses and stuff are in place. Because of the export license issues, which I am neither an export nor very experienced on. I would, um, I would say try to stick with FOB because with exports, it can get a little bit more complicated. Okay, that's good now. Well, you can also look up on uh, Google the inco terms. I think it's INCO terms. There's always, you know, go to the image search. There's a bunch of um, tables that show not just FOB and EXW, but there's probably 12 different phrases. CIF is cost, insurance, and freight. So that would be the supplier pays it, kind of everything except for duty um, to you because that includes insurance and freight. And DDP is delivered duty paid, which means they pay um, insurance, freight, and duty and get it to you. And I think that the way Amazon buyers are buying for air shipments is very um, CIF-like because you're asking the supplier to take on and manage the air shipment costs. Mm -hmm. Uh, But for ocean shipments, it tends to be more FOB.
2: Yeah. My last uh, shipment that I had, my supplier handle, they, they actually have their own freight forwarder. I, this is going to sound really crazy to you probably, but I didn't even know the name of the freight forwarder. I was just dealing with my supplier and they said, you know, they're a big supplier. And they said, yep, we'll take care of it. We do you know, hundreds of orders to to Amazon every month. And they did it and they gave me a price. Uh, once they knew the, the three factories or the, sorry, the three uh, warehouses that it was going to, they gave me a price and they said, dad, this is going to be your price. And it's, that's the delivered price door to door. So they didn't, they didn't use any of the, uh, the acronyms or anything like that. Have you heard of stuff like that? Is that normal? Did they ship by air or by ocean? Um, that one was, there's two. That, that particular one that was delivered was by air. So air, that can make sense
1: because for air, they'll probably just use a courier like UPS or FedEx and UPS and FedEx, you know, can drop stuff off at mm-hmm. the Amazon warehouses anytime. For ocean, and that, that's where it would be, I wouldn't say surprising, but not something that I've heard before. Uh, Because for Ocean, you need an importer of record. And I'm not sure who would have acted as the importer of record in that kind of transaction, one. And two, if you were buying um, FOB, which meant that you had legal ownership or legal title when the goods passed or got on the boat, um, then suddenly you have kind of legal title and you you don't know where the goods are. Hmm. And they're not in control of a freight forwarder that kind of you own. So I'm not saying that you can't do it. There are just some additional risks involved.
2: Interesting. Do you find that freight forwarders in China are typically less expensive than you would find here in the U.S.? And is it by a large margin?
1: That's one also that I don't have a lot of experience on. I'd say a bigger picture, freight costs have really plummeted compared to a couple of years ago. There's an overcapacity of freight space. And a lot of the costs for ocean freight are somewhat fixed. There are port fees on both sides, plus then the space in the container. Uh, what most people that I talk to say is just get a couple quotes for, for your shipment and uh, judge the cost that way.
2: Okay. And what kind of money you, can that typical private labeler save when ordering via ship versus, or sea versus, let's say, express air in terms of percentages? Yeah, you know,
1: it totally depends on the size and weight of the product. Like if you've got um, one of the examples that I saw, Sam Boyd from Guided Imports, he did, he did out water bottles, all plastic water bottles, and he did some calculations on it. And water bottles, you know, they're not big, but they're light. And as you know, for air shipping goes by the greater of volumetric weight or physical weight. Mm-hmm. So water bottles would be something that would ship by volumetric weight, right? It might weigh, I don't know, 10 kg, uh, but they might charge you 40 kg just because it uses so much volume. Um, and in his calculations, The water bottle for air shipping was about six bucks each. And for ocean shipping was about $1 each. So there you're saving $5 per unit going by ocean versus air.
2: Wow. And that includes, is that the final price delivered or
1: for both of them? No, that that would be just the freight costs, right? So that doesn't include product fees, Uh, but for the ocean freight costs, that would include the origin port fees, the destination port fees, the freight space fees, because, you know, for a, for a container, um, you can move a container of goods for, I don't know, $2,500. So if you've got 2,500 pieces in that container, that's a buck a piece.
2: Okay. So that's tip, that's a typical price $2,500 and that's to get it here. And here, here's the thing I'm confused on because I've I've had quotes from, it was a different supplier in China and the shipping fee itself was really low. But then by the time you added in, it was, seemed like there was about 30 other fees. Right, right. It ended up becoming, yeah, it was like, uh, it, it jumped up quite a bit. It was a lot closer to what the express air fee was going to be, I mean, was, there was still a good difference, but it wasn't as low. It wasn't like one six, like you just mentioned, you know, where it was $1 versus five or $6. Yeah.
1: Again, the example that I was giving was kind of a full container. Okay. Right. So that's t- 10 or 11 pallets of goods. You would never airship that much. Right. Um, there's certainly a break even point because with ocean shipping, there are fixed costs. Mm-hmm. There are the port fees on both sides um, that are just fixed. So I, numbers people have said, and I haven't validated these with math, but if you're at three cubic meters or less, or if you're at 100 and I think 150 kg or less, it makes sense to do air instead of ocean, right? There are just too many fixed costs in ocean for it to make sense. But it, as your shipment volume gets bigger, ocean starts making a lot of sense.
2: Okay. Let me, you said 150 kilograms or what was it? A hundred uh, uh, cubic? cubic meters called three cubic yards. Three cubic yards. Okay. Cubic yards. But, but, yards. Okay, but again,
1: do your own math on your own products.
2: <laughs> right, right. So, okay. So, uh, but generally speaking, so if you're a, uh, if you're over 150 k or uh, a kg um, or three cubic yards, then it becomes more. I mean, start looking um, at it, start I comparing.
1: Guess. And my guess is for your shipment, where if right. they were close, you know, you're kind of at that break-even point, and you know, at that break-even point, go by air. You'll like, uh, you'll get, you'll turn over your cash faster. Unless you want to do it to learn ocean.
2: Right. Yeah, that makes sense. So, and then typically, um, I mean, if you're bringing this stuff into the states. Uh, I've been seeing, I think the last shipment I did, um, by the time it got to Amazon took about six weeks. Does that seem about normal?
1: Yeah, that's within the range. I mean, I think the, the, on the ocean time is call it 18 days, maybe a little less, maybe a little bit more mm-hmm. also depending from which port you're going. But then there's usually, you know, a few days on each side of the port, then us customs has to clear it. Then your freight company has to pick it up. One other thing on the, the quotes, sorry, that you were mentioning earlier. There's two things that make apples for apples comparisons of quotes sometimes different, and that's the, the inland freight. So if you're getting an, a, quote, FOB, then your supplier's taking care of inland freight on the China side, right? Getting the freight from their factory to the port. You want to you make sure that when you get multiple quotes for freight forwarding on the U.S. side, that, everybody's, that either they include or don't include inland freight, because the inland freight can be very material uh, to the total cost. The second thing to watch out for is the customs duties. I, I think most freight forwarders do not quote customs duties, uh, but they will charge you for them afterwards. So, I mean, don't be surprised when that extra bill comes in.
2: And you're saying that the bill will come in from the actual shipping company or from the freight forwarder?
1: Yeah, because usually the, the freight forwarder uh, pays it on your behalf and then you pay them, if I understand that correctly.
2: Okay. So, and I guess that's one of the things that confuse me. So if I'm, if I'm buying things and sending them out via Express Air, they say hey, it's going to cost you $2,000 to send the stuff in. So two thousand dollars, they ship it, and it um it arrives at Amazon's warehouses. That's it, right? I, I'll have some duty fees, um, or, or unless it's uh, duty free, but with the um, with, if you're sending it by ship, it gets to the port out here. But then there could be additional costs to actually get it, get those things put on a truck, and then sent out.
1: Um, yeah, and what most people, what most freight forwarders will do is they'll quote. I mean, what would be common? There'd be two types of quotes that are common. One is um to our warehouse, right? So the freight forwarder says. This will quote you everything to our warehouse, mm-hmm. and then um, you'll need to go into Seller Central and set up the um, Amazon appointed carriers to pick it up from the warehouse. Um, the second way to do it is the freight forwarder will quote all the way to the Amazon warehouses. So you just need to be clear on which quote, which type of quote you're getting. Again, in that apples for apples comparison.
2: Okay. Do you feel it's necessary or, or advantageous to have the products uh, come to a, a U.S. warehouse for inspection before it gets reshipped over to Amazon? I think it totally
1: depends on the product. I, you know In general, I think one wants to move toward not needing to reinspect the product. And really, what does inspection in a warehouse in the U.S. mean? Does it mean making sure that the shipping cartons are not damaged, or does it mean unpacking products and looking at the pro- you know units inside the unit cartons? In general, um, what I understand most people are doing is they're trying to get everything done in China, um, the QC, the inspection, and then they have good packaging so that the product will survive the shipment well uh, so that it doesn't require additional inspection on the U.S. side.
2: Okay. What kind of, let's talk about that. What kind of packaging um, do you recommend in terms of, like I guess, the cardboard thicknesses for the boxes and corner protectors or whatever else? To yeah, recommend? no,
1: Amazon has um, their recommendations or requirements. I think they, it's uh, less than 50 pounds per carton, less than 1,500, uh, I forget if it's pounds or kg for a pallet. Um, they want cartons with a certain edge crush strength. Uh, I mean, you can get all these requirements and just share them with your supplier and say, this is what we need. And that should put you in pretty good shape for the, you know, the, the master cartons for the, the unit products, you know, each product is different. You know, how much foam or bubble wrap or whatever do you need inside the product to prevent it from getting damaged during transit? really depends on the product. It's a glass product. You need to be a heck of a lot more careful. Yeah, right. If it's, if, you know, if it's a metal or plastic product, you may not need to be as careful.
2: Okay. Yeah. I, I've had, um, I've had products sent out to me here first uh, for inspection, especially when I was first starting out. And there was a, a massive difference between two suppliers. Uh, one of them, the, the box was, or the, the master carton was considerably thinner than one of the other ones that came in really intact and, and looked awesome. Or the other one was thinner and it, the corners were kind of crushed in, which crushed you know, a few of the units, the, the, the internal boxes of those units, I should say, uh, the products themselves were okay.
1: And this comes back to the communication. And as part of the QC requirements, I would definitely put in, and these are my requirements for the MasterCard and for the unit
2: boxes. Okay. All right. That's good to know. What about um, the made in China stickers? You see that on so many things and I've talked to people and a ton of people just aren't doing it. Is that, how important is that?
1: No, I think it's a regulatory requirement, but it's, if I understand correctly, it's a poorly enforced regulatory requirement. So in the U S there are a lot of regulatory requirements and, you know, sad to say many of them are not well enforced. So you're kind of
2: rolling the dice. Okay. Does it matter where, it, where it is? I mean, does it have to be actually on the product or can it be on the, you know, the, the units box or.
1: You know, again, this this is not something that I'm a hundred hundred percent familiar with. Okay. Um, if you want, if you want to be safe, you know, put it on the product, put it on the unit box, put it on the
2: master carton. Okay. Get it everywhere.
1: I should actually check. It. I would ask uh, the folks at Cascadia Product Testing Solutions. Rachel Greer should be a good one to answer that question.
2: Okay. Cool. What about if the product you've got it on a ship? Let's just say it's damaged or lost or it, something happens um, when you're. Using freight forwarders, is that automatically covered or do you have to get additional insurances for that? Or what are your thoughts there?
1: Yeah. So the first thing is um, we'll assume that you bought FOB Mm -hmm. so that, you know, you, once it's on the ship, you kind of have title and and own the product. Um, And then second, um, yes, when you get your quotes from your freight forwarder, there'll always be a checkbox or a question, do you want insurance? And if you check that box and get insurance, then you can make a claim. If you don't check that box, then I don't think you can make a claim.
2: Okay. Is it pretty standard? I mean, from what you've seen from from clients, are most of them getting that insurance? This is not something
1: I've asked folks whether they usually get the insurance or not. And, and I think the insurance is, if I remember correctly, it's a half a percent or one percent of the order value. Okay. So it's really low. Yeah. It's, it's again an issue of risk tolerance and whether you want insurance or not.
2: Yeah. Have you have you heard any stories of people just completely losing their packages, their their shipment?
1: I not not many. I mean the stories that I hear more are things like, um, Hey, the product got to the U S it didn't clear customs because it didn't
2: have the FDA approvals it needed. So the product got destroyed. Okay. So here's a scenario that I was thinking about. If, if Amazon is charging, they charge 30 cents per unit to do placement service. So instead of uh, me giving three different warehouses to my supplier, I can have everything shipped to one and then have everything just brought in and and shipped, you know, put it on a truck and then it goes to that one warehouse versus them then having to split everything up, put it on three different trucks, right? Yep. Yep. So in that type of a scenario, is it, uh, could it be potentially cheaper to to do that placement service, have it all go to one place versus actually splitting it up the way Amazon wants?
1: Yeah, I think, and if I remember correctly, it's it's 30 cents or more because it's partly weight-based. Correct. You know, this is an interesting supply chain cost optimization question. I think the the first question is when you set up your, what's it called the fulfillment order in Seller Central, is Amazon going to send it to multiple uh, fulfillment centers or not? Uh, What I've seen more recently is they're only sending stuff to one fulfillment center for some orders. So that's great. Then you solve the 30 cent problem. (laughs) You don't have to pay the 30 cents. Yeah. But if they do send it to multiple fulfillment centers, you know, then you need to think about does that make sense or not? And if you want to optimize your costs, uh, what you can do is you can figure that out before the supplier has palletized goods. So you can tell the supplier, hey, palletize the goods so that these two pallets go to this fulfillment center these three pallets go to this other fulfillment center. And these two pallets go to this third fulfillment center. Now, the advantage of that is you don't have to break down the pallets in the US where labor costs are higher, You know, break down and rebuild them. The disadvantage is you may not be optimizing the use of space in the container. Mm. So that ends up depending on you know how the pallets are configured and how much product you can get on each pallet.
2: That makes sense. So I was just thinking though, you mentioned that you typically see Um, Amazon having you send everything to one warehouse. Are you speaking specifically about palletized products? Yes.
1: What I've seen for, and I have a lot more experience with the ocean stuff than the air stuff. What I've been seeing is more comments that for the ocean stuff, Amazon is increasingly, I'm certainly not saying always, is increasingly sending stuff, requesting stuff be sent to one fulfillment center instead of multiple fulfillment centers. I, I don't know why.
2: Yeah. No, I, hopefully that's the case. I, I haven't been doing too many palletized um, orders. Speaking of which, um, for those listeners that don't know um, what palletized even means, can you briefly describe that? Sure.
1: Sure. So the pallet, I mean, if you go to the, I guess the grocery store parking lot, you see those wooden things that, uh, that basically the forklift sticks the fork into to pick up the wooden thing that has a bunch of um, um, master cartons or cartons of stuff above it. That, that's the pallet. And usually they're made out of wood and Amazon, I think requires then that stuff that comes in through the Amazon appointed less than container load carriers be palletized, which means the cartons are stacked on a pallet so that they can move around with, be moved around with a forklift very easily.
2: Okay. Great. Great. Speaking of things being palletized, um, a great little gem that came from your expo from your sourcing summit came from Anthony Chen. I guess this was from, he works with Flexport. Is that correct? Yeah.
1: Flexport is one of the online, uh, freight forwarders.
2: Okay. He was talking about hiding valuable cargo. So for example, if I, I think in his example, he was talking about importing tablets and because it's something that could have potential high theft rates, he suggested using black sh- uh, shrink wrap to cover the pallets, that there would be no actual cost difference between the black and the, the clear stuff. Um, I never thought about this, but um, is there a reason not to use black shrink wrap all the time? And um, what are your thoughts on this?
1: Yeah, great question. Uh, my first answer is I don't know i'll have to ask him that as a follow-up question but my second thought would be maybe customs would get upset if they can't see what's in you know products more often so you have to maybe balance the is customs going to get upset versus is there going to be theft or or, you know inventory shrinkage if people see what it is Um, but either way uh, i'd ask the freight forwarder what they think
2: okay earlier you were talking about trying to fill up a container and if you're using pallets incorrectly you might not fill fill those containers How much do you need to actually fill up an entire container and and what are the advantages of of doing so versus doing um, partial filling? Let's say you do a third of it or something like that.
1: I think that the volume of a container, a 20 foot container is, I think, I don't remember 30 cubic meters, but anyway, there's some volume. And if they put the pallets in correctly, they can get nine, 10 or 11 pallets in depending on whether product is overhanging the edges of the pallets or not. At the end of the day, you need to work with your supplier to figure out how are they going to stack products on the pallets? You know, how much can they get on the pallet before they hit the weight limit? But at the end of the day, you know, because of the fixed cost for the port fees on both sides, the incremental costs for using more space in a pallet are are quite low. So if you're going to pay, I mean, let's just say you're going to pay $1,500 to get a half a container for a thousand units. Um, You might pay Let's just say two thousand dollars for a full container for two thousand units. Oh wow! So that then you're going from a buck fifty a unit to a buck a unit. That's a savings of fifty cents a unit uh, for moving from a partial container to a full container. Now that you know that's just a very rough example. It, everybody needs to do the math on their own products.
2: Right. Okay. What if you're ordering uh, from the same supplier? You've got multiple products. Um, do all the products, if they're different SKUs, have to be palletized separately? No,
1: Amazon does not require them. Different SKUs to be palletized separately. They just require all of the goods to be, you know, somewhere on all the
2: pallets in the shipment. All right, that's good to know. And then, if you're dealing with, you were talking about trying to fill up a, a container because you know the, the additional cost is is minimal. Uh, let's say versus half a container. If you're if you're ordering from different suppliers, um, is it better to try to let's say they're a week or two weeks apart in their production schedule. Kind of wait until they ha- you have everything and then get that all sent over at the same time and put into one, one container.
1: I hate to say it again, but that's another one where it depends on how the numbers work out. Definitely, you can get them consolidated. The freight forwarder can usually help with that. I was talking to a couple of folks about this question also, and what they suggest is buy FOB and have the freight forwarder consolidate into a single shipment. Uh, but then you want to think about the time difference and whether that's causing you other problems like cash flow problems or you're out of inventory or other issues. Uh, but definitely, it is possible to consolidate orders from multiple suppliers and have your freight forwarder do that.
2: Okay. So you would just talk to the freight forwarder and let them deal with the factories and and handle that all for you then? Yes. All right. Great. So here's one that um, really has a lot of people confused, including myself, but when should a seller be worried about any compliance codes or certifications, whatever they're, I guess they're called for all the different products that are coming in? Because you were talking about earlier, the made in China thing, nobody really cares about that, but do they care if a product's coming in and it's a toy that a kid's going to put in his mouth and you need specific I guess certifications for? I would say always, (laughs) but
1: everybody that I've talked to says that the Amazon PL sellers are, you know, and it's not just in the US; it's in Europe also, Mm -hmm. are really not doing a good job of understanding regulatory compliance requirements and following the regulatory compliance requirements. I mean, there's a couple different risks. One is that your goods get stopped by customs and then they get destroyed. I mean, they're not compliant. Boom, they're not coming in the country. Um, Second is that you get fined. I mean, they come into the country, they sell, and you get fined by one of the government authorities. Uh, Third risk probably around safety issues, is that if there is a safety problem, like hoverboards blowing up, Mm. that you'll get sued. And if you don't have the safety certifications in place, then the odds of you losing that suit or losing more money in that suit would seem to be higher. So you know, a lot of this is about risk and risk mitigation. I would say, try to understand the regulatory and safety requirements for your products, definitely. And at some point, it seems like, and Rachel Greer, who used to work at Amazon said this also, at some point, it seems like Amazon is going to get a little bit stricter on ensuring that the private label products meet regulatory
2: requirements. Okay. So regarding the certifications, is this something that if your supplier says they have the certifications in place and they're from China, does that work for you? Or do you have to get your own certifications when you're bringing it into the U.S.?
1: I'd always say ask, but verify. You are the importer of record when you're bringing goods into the U.S. So it is your legal responsibility to make sure that those certifications and standards, safety standards are being met. The way to figure out a little bit more conclusively is to go to your inspection company and say, hey, here's the product. Um, What are the regulatory requirements that I need to be aware of and that I need to meet? And then you can ask the inspection company, hey, for this product, can I use, well, one, can I use what the supplier has? Um, Two, whatever the supplier tells you when you verify, go try to find an online third-party database that you can verify that it's real and that it's there. Um, There are Photoshop certifications that float around or that suppliers share. And I have, I did hear a story probably a couple of weeks ago of a buyer who um, imported some stuff. The supplier said they had the certification and then uh, the regulatory authority requested certification from the buyer. Buyer went back to the supplier to ask for it. And supplier said, um, oops, my bad. Sorry, we didn't really have it.
2: <laughs> oh, jeez. So, so where would somebody go? Where does a seller go to, to find out exactly what they need and to find out you know, if, so if their supplier actually has this?
1: This is a great question because for the US, there is no one single database that will give you a clear list of what you need. Um, so the first place that I would go is your inspection company. Uh, and there, there's a range of things you can do. You can ask the supplier. Hey, Mr. Supplier, what are other people are asking for? You can ask your inspection company. You can ask your uh, freight forwarder. Sometimes they know. Um, you can do online internet research. Uh, you can hire a lawyer that this, specializes in this and ask them. That tends to be the most, most expensive route. Um, or you can hire kind of an independent third party uh, that Cascadia product testing solutions does this. It'll do the research for you and tell you what you need. So there's, there's a lot of ways to do it, but they all you know cost money and take time.
2: Right. Okay. Yeah. And I've, I've dealt with suppliers that they'll send me the images of their certifications and I've used those and I haven't had any issues, but I'm like, man, just like you said, one of these days I'm going to get with a new supplier and they're going to say they've got it. And that would be, I guess, a horrible situation. You get everything into port and then you don't have it. And you said they could even destroy the, the products. Yeah.
1: Again, depending on the, the compliance issue and the product.
2: So if the, if, if your supplier has the certifications, the countries each have their own certifications, right? So they might have a certification for China, but not for the U S so is that right? And what did you need to ask that specifically? Yeah, absolutely.
1: Every country has their own uh, certification or regulatory compliance or safety requirements. So you need to understand your countries, which, you know, for most listeners will be folks selling in the U S regulatory and safety requirements and make sure that those are the ones you're asking for and those are the ones that are being met. All right, great.
2: One of your speakers at uh, your sourcing summit had mentioned that some of the FDA regulatory compliance paperwork or or I guess uh, certificates, there was one called the ASTM regulatory compliance. Uh, They're not that expensive typically. Um, You can get them for under a thousand dollars. Is that kind of uh, normally what they they go for or is there a vast range? You know, I was asking the folks at Asia
1: Inspection. I said, hey, wouldn't it be easy to just do a list of, you know, regulatory compliance requirements, the tests that are required for those and how much they cost? And they said, um, yeah, we have one of those. It's 40 pages long. And I said, OK, <laughs> can we do a list of just the ones that are used more frequently? So the, the data is there. Like you said, a couple of the examples that I saw were in the call it three to eight hundred dollar range for some of the compliance testing. Now, some of the safety testing, like uh, uh, UL testing for electronics, uh, that can be more like ten thousand dollars. Oh, wow! So it can it can vary, you know, quite a bit depending on what's required to achieve that certification.
2: Okay, and this is really good information. So, let's say that you're just getting going and you want to find out what code your product is even in. For example, um, if I'm importing small plastic toy cars, you know, is is my code going to be for plastics or is it going to be for toys and I imagine that could be a a big difference because some things are duty-free and some aren't, right?
1: Yeah. So what you're talking about is the the HS code or the HTS code. And somebody explained to me the difference between those two. I think one is used in the U.S. and one is used in the rest of the world. But it's basically the the classification. It's a six, eight, or 10-digit number. And I think the the number of digits varies by country. uh, That classifies the product. And then once the product is classified, there's a duty rate tied um, to that product classification. So the thing is, you can go online at a site like dutycalculator.com, or even um, there's a giant PDF file in the directory that you can search the US government, I forget the site, and you can search through it. The thing is, at the end of the day, it's the the government inspector guy who sees your uh, information coming through that decides. So for instance, uh, one of my friends was importing buttons, but they were the buttons for an old Jeep, you know, the horn button, Uh not a shirt button, but it was described as buttons. Mm. So the guy that decided what the duty rate would be said, Oh, these are shirt buttons. They get that (laughs) rate." And then, you know, afterwards my friend had to go and, you know, appeal it and say, Whoa, 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 hold on. These are not shirt buttons. These are buttons for a horn on a Jeep and that's a different duty rate. So we should have a lower duty rate and we need to get a refund on the
2: duties that we paid. Okay. And so you can do that after the fact then?
1: You can, but I would not, I mean, it's government bureaucracy, right? I would not encourage it as part of your normal business practice.
2: <laughs> okay. So let's just say it gets through the port, everything's good, and it gets over to Amazon. Have you heard of scenarios where Amazon then requires or needs this, uh, the, these compliance paperwork? Well, I think they did with the hoverboards, right? Yeah, actually, I don't know. I know they were blowing up, so that probably raised a lot of flags. So.
1: Yeah, no, th- I think then they went out and they asked people, hey, give us this um, the, you know, this certification paperwork or else. And I don't remember if it was both. Uh, we're not going to sell your products anymore and we're going to destroy the inventory.
2: Mm, okay. So um, going back to the, I think you call it the HS codes. The HS code is pretty important then. Um, relative to the regulatory documents you might need, right? Because if you use a wrong HS code, you would need specific paperwork versus something else?
1: So the HS codes are almost exclusively only for the duty rates. Okay. In order to figure out um, safety or other regulatory compliance issues, you know, they're different government organizations. As far as I know, they are completely, they're largely unrelated or not related to the HS codes.
2: So, what code is it that um, would cause you to have to provide or, or to have some kind of proof of documentation?
1: It's more a product description. Like, you know, just for instance, for light lighting, California has energy requirements for uh, lamps and LED lamps. Mm-hmm. So it's an LED lamp, boom. Um, it falls, falls within the scope of those California energy
2: requirements. Okay. So it's not automated then. Somebody's actually looking at this and going, okay, this needs this particular regu- uh, regulatory uh, certification.
1: And this is why third-party um, expertise is so valuable in, in addressing what's required and what's not required.
2: Okay. So if you're using an inspection company, I mean, um, using inspection companies right there in China that, that go out, is it, does it really matter who you use? Is there a specific place? that you would recommend people go to find the right company?
1: Well, there are, I mean, there are a bunch of inspection companies, you know, the old school tier one inspection companies. And I, I don't know how good they are working with Amazon private label sellers, right? Because the private label sellers don't generate as many inspections per year as say a Walmart. But that would be uh, Bureau Veritas, um, SGS, uh, TUV, and Intertech. And all of them also own labs. So they can all tell you what the regulatory uh, requirements would be in safety requirements for a product. Um, the next, I'll call it the next group of, um, of inspection companies that I think are more receptive to working with these smaller, you know, inspections per year, Amazon private label sellers They include companies like Asia Inspection, Asia Quality Focus, InTouch Quality, uh, VTrust, uh, ProQC. I mean, there's a bunch of them, uh, but these companies are a very, very, very good first place to check. Uh, what, are the, what are the regulatory requirements for this product in this country? And if they can help you, great. Um, if they can't, uh, then you need to go to plan B, which might be find a specialist. It would be a safer way to uh, do some internet research is you know, helpful, but may not be as comprehensive.
2: Okay. Would you ever let your uh, supplier choose the codes for you before shipping things out to you? I
1: think you can ask, So again, this comes to the duty rates. I think I would I'd be happy to ask the supplier, hey, what um, HS codes do you normally use? We were trying to capture um, HS codes from suppliers. And it turns out that because the HS codes are a little bit different in each country, they often don't know because it's the the destination country's code. So they often don't know the exact code. Um, So I think you can ask them uh, and that'll narrow it down and give you guidance. uh, But you should still go double check. I mean, the worst that'll happen is you'll be surprised by having a higher or lower duty rate than you expected.
2: All right. and if if let's on back to the uh, the compliance certifications and things you need, you need, is are those things pretty fast? Is it just a matter of a few days, or does it take a long time?
1: I, if I understand correctly, a lot of these lab tests are take two to three weeks. I believe that something like a UL safety certification may take longer four to six weeks, if I remember correctly.
2: And that's taking the product um, and you have to bring it into the U.S. to actually send to a lab here? Is that how it works or or is it done there in China?
1: No, there there are labs in China also. If you're doing it through your inspection company, they'll have preferred and trusted lab service providers. Okay. All right. And also it depends on the test. Uh, Many of the tests can be done in China. I would suspect that there are some specialized tests uh, that are not done in China yet.
2: Okay. And some, I, I saw a particular listing of inspectors and they were a few hundred dollars typically. Um, there was probably like 20 or 30 of them on there different companies. Um, does that seem really low? or Is that something that you would say is, is normal? What are your suggestions? Uh, the there?
1: inspection companies that I listed previously all charge about $300 per mandate. Okay. And for an Amazon private label order, typically will not require more than one mandate for the product inspection. Um, so those would be typical charges. I have seen uh, reports of, I'll say, entry-level local inspection companies that are charging as little as $100 uh, per mandate. I don't have experience and I'm not familiar with those companies, so I don't really know the, the difference in the service level that you get from them.
2: All right, great. So let's talk about continuous bonds. That's something that I hear freight forwarders talking about. Um, can you tell us what that is and when do you need it? Right. So if you're
1: importing um, goods, and I'm going to talk about by ocean, I'm not as clear on this for air freight you either have to pay a $100 bond. And if I understand correctly, it's a bond to make sure that you're going to pay the customs duties. You have to pay either $100 per shipment, or you can get a continuous bond, which allows you an unlimited number of shipments over a 12 month period. And the continuous bond, I think it depends on who you get it through. Um, I believe the range of numbers is between $300 and $600. So your breakeven ends up being three to six shipments per year. If you're going to do more than six shipments per year, get a continuous bond.
2: Okay. On the flip side, is there an amount that you can import into the, into the U.S. without incurring any fees? So I
1: believe that the threshold was recently raised to $800 U.S.
2: Okay. So it's really low. Yes. All right. So if you've got a $1,500 shipment, I guess technically if you wanted to if somebody wanted to be thrifty, they could break it into two shipments and send it that way. Is that right?
1: Yeah, so, and then it depends on what's the duty rate. I mean, a 3% duty rate on 1,500 bucks is what, uh, $45. Yeah. By splitting it into two shipments, you're probably going to incur more than an incremental $45 in costs. But I mean, it's, it depends on the math.
2: It makes sense, right? Okay. Um, well, let's talk about small factories versus large factories. I mean, that's your company. You deal with factories all the time. I've heard it's um, oftentimes, you know, it's better to be a bigger fish and a smaller palm than, than the other way around when dealing with suppliers. So uh, what's your thoughts on this?
1: Yeah, I think that there's advantages and disadvantages for both approaches. I mean, the advantage of the larger factories, they tend to have um, more experience. They tend to be working with the larger um, retailers. Um, certainly the disadvantage is your order is a small order, and it will likely get bumped for one of their better customers if you know, it comes to that. Um, but the larger factories may have capabilities um, that the smaller factories don't. On the other hand, you know, the smaller factories, like you said, where you're a bigger fish and smaller pond, you may get better service. Uh, you may be able to get more, more changes or your timelines hit more regularly. So, you know, both have advantages and
2: disadvantages. Okay. That makes sense. And then would you recommend that um, all your packaging, your labels, the FN SKUs made in China, all that stuff get done by, by your supplier there uh, in China? Yes. Just all at the same place because it doesn't cost much more, right? So we're talking about cents typically. Yes.
1: Um, but I would also say as part of your QC requirements, you know, get all of that stuff from Amazon on the, the palletizing requirements, the carton weight requirements, the carton size requirements, you know, and just, inc- just create, make that a standard part of your requirements list. You can reuse it, you know, with every supplier mm-hmm. and, and share that with the suppliers upfront with your purchase order so they know what you want to do and they can price it in appropriately.
2: Okay. I'm, I'm going to be jumping around here because as, as we talk about things, you'll remind me of something that I didn't ask, but. For pallets or actually for ship containers, if you're doing half a ship container or a full ship container, is it a requirement that everything be on pallets?
1: I believe with Amazon, it's a requirement that things be on pallets. I've only heard, I heard a story from one person where they got a container of stuff that wasn't palletized and it took them like two hours to unload the container (laughs) because they had to hand carry each carton out. So uh, I believe it is a requirement. Yes.
2: So Amazon will say if if you I guess there's a number. I don't even know what the number is. If there's a certain number of boxes in a particular order, do they require a pallet then? Because I haven't seen that when I'm ordering, when I've done, I mean, I've done stuff where it's like 167 cartons, master cartons, and it doesn't, and it, I'm not selecting palletized or anything like that. And everything goes through.
1: Is that air shipping or ocean shipping? I think for air, because it's going by courier, they'll take one pallet at a time. Uh-huh. But for ocean and air freight, I'm not as familiar with, but for ocean freight, I believe it has to be palletized.
2: Okay. So that's a good point. So you're mentioning um, air freight. So uh, there's express air, which we talked about, which people can get, you know, in four to seven days, um, sometimes even faster. I've, I've seen it uh, just recently where it was real quick. But um, when you're talking about air freight, it's, the, it's like the air version of, of sea shipping, right? It takes a little bit longer. Um, can you tell us about uh, using airplanes and what the difference is between that and, and sea shipping? Yeah, I'm not an
1: expert on that. I mean, like you said, it's gonna be faster. It's gonna be more expensive. Um, I think that the, the goods are more likely to need to be palletized. And like you said, m- my understanding, it's the
2: air equivalent of ocean freight. Okay. That makes sense. I haven't actually used that. Uh, that's the one, the one thing I haven't done. So um, can you recommend, well, actually, we, we talked about inspection companies. Do you have a particular place that you ever recommend people go?
1: I think, yeah, the ones that I listed earlier are all reputable inspection companies. I,
2: okay. At the yeah, beginning.
1: I, I mean, I can run through them again or...
2: No, that's fine. So do they? Um, if, if you've got um, suppliers in different cities, for example, do they handle all that or are they specific to, uh, the, to one city typically?
1: Oh, that's a good question. I think the ones that I listed will usually handle um, any city. Then the, the follow-up questions, do they handle them with their own employees or with um, you know, part-time folks? And that depends on the city. Um, most of the ones that I listed have pretty good China coverage, but they all have different coverage. Um, and usually if they can't do something, they'll tell you, you know, or they'll h- hire, I'll call it a, a freelancer um, to do it.
2: Okay, great. Um, suppliers are constantly bombarded um, by tons of sellers, or, or, or sorry, uh, buyers. And a lot of them are always short, right? They're saying, please send me your pricing or send me your catalog. So you probably get hundreds of these. Um, any, I, any thoughts on your side on how to set yourself apart from everybody else and try to get those, uh, those good deals and get those big factories to, to go with you?
1: Yeah, no, that's a great question. And at our Smart China uh, Sourcing Summit, we had a supplier panel and it was interesting. They, they'd, you know, they'd never speak English, great. But the main point that I took away was exactly what you said. They say, hey, we get a ton of inquiries that say, you know, please give me your catalog. And they, not in so many words, they said, those inquiries are not very exciting. Um, if you want to get our attention, have an inquiry that has very detailed requirements, um, including uh, regulatory requirements that you need met, and the more detailed, um, the better, because then we can do a much better job of responding uh, to you and your specific needs. So the the main feedback that we got there was, yeah, do as specific and detailed an inquiry as possible. That will help you stand out. I think the second thing to get their attention, um, especially for Amazon sellers, I. It's interesting, I've gotten some feedback that some suppliers like Amazon sellers because they're seeing good volumes, Um, but I think you still want to present yourself with some kind of background or expertise about your company. You know, if you're an existing seller, that's easier. We're an existing seller uh, doing whatever. We import this many uh, containers per year, you know, or I have expertise in this particular product area and I wanna develop a new market. You know, something that makes you sound interesting to work with.
2: Okay. On global sources, is there a way to know if um, a particular factory you're dealing with or talking to is one of the smaller or larger ones?
1: We have, we have information on the uh, size of the factory, the number of employees. So you can certainly look at that. Uh, I think some of the other things that you'd want to look at to qualify a factory are um, how many years have they been online? That's always helpful. Uh, actually, most important is are they verified or not? And the ones that you see with, with stars will all be verified. And I was mentioning earlier, we do see complaints from buyers about their relationship with suppliers. Most of those are commercial dispute related. In very, very, very rare cases, we do have situations where a supplier isn't you know, acting in accordance with what we would expect of them with buyers. So maybe one time a year, we have to pull a supplier down. But what that means is the vast majority of suppliers are pretty good. Um, so any of the verified suppliers are fine. But then, within the verified suppliers, I, I, if you needed to further narrow down, you know, number of years that they've been on the site, we have their major customers. So, who are they exporting to? There, you might look at the the country that those um customers are in, and you can also see whether or not they're attending trade shows. So, those are some of the things you can look at.
2: Okay, great. So, if i if I find some companies on there, let's say I, let's say I, I have a product and I'm going to make a bundle out of it, and um. It's gonna be a dry eraser board, and then I also want to. I want to make it unique, so I'm gonna include some markers—a six pack or eight pack of markers, let's say. Um, and but I'm using two different factories for this, okay? Through your through global sources. Um, what do you recommend somebody do there? Is it cheaper to have the two factories communicate with each other and like does one factory send the stuff to the other and then they bundle everything together, or do they send it to a third company that does that, or do you do it here in the U.S.? What's your process there?
1: Right. No. So you, I think you outlined exactly the three options the one of sending it to the U.S. and bundling it there would seem to be the most expensive option. So that would be the one that I would recommend last. Um, there may be reasons you want to do that, like you want to be very secretive and don't want anybody to know what you're doing, which then comes to the second option of having a third party in China uh, bundle the goods. And again, you would do that if you don't want either party to know what the final product is. And companies like PassageMaker um, help uh, brand owners and retailers in that situation. And then the third option, like you said, if it's not very secretive, is see if one supplier or the other supplier can just take the shipment from the other one
2: and bundle it together the way you want it done. Okay. What's PassageMaker?
1: What's PassageMaker, uh, Passage they also spoke at our Smart China Sourcing Conference. Mm-hmm. Basically, they're an, an on-the-ground uh, project manager and sourcing agent. Um, they work with everybody from large brand owners down to Amazon private label sellers.
2: Okay. So if I wanted because I wouldn't know where to start to find, let's say a third company that everybody, the other two factories would send everything to, to get things bundled. Is that, I mean, is that something that you could find on global sources or is that somebody you, like you would use passage maker to, to actually set that all up?
1: I don't think that we have a way on global sources to easily find, Hey, these people specialize in, you know, uh, uh consolidating or assembling, uh, products from multiple sources, mm-hmm. uh, passage maker does do that as one of their services. And then, like I said, you could talk to either of the factories and have them do it. Again, subject to, you know, how secretive you're trying to be about what the final product looks
2: like. It's interesting. I, I know a lot of people talk about that and they're like, man, I, my, my supplier says that they won't do it. They won't take products from another factory. And so then they're bringing them into the U.S. And there's, there's plenty of companies here, um, freight forwarding companies uh, specifically that also do those services where they'll repackage everything and put your labels on it and do the whole thing. But it gets expensive. You know, it's a dollar here and a dollar 50 there. Yeah, certainly. <laughs> it, it adds up really fast. Before you know it, you've spent more than what it actually costs you to make the thing. Yep, yep. Just to package them together. Um, so cash flow, let's talk about that for a second. Um, I, and I know we've kind of hit on this already with you talking through uh, talking about the various uh, shipping options and so forth. But cash flow is a really big issue for a lot of, uh, especially a lot of new people, right? Because they, uh, they've got to outlay a big chunk of cash. It's going to be, though that product could be on a boat for at least a month. And so they're not actually selling anything. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, how how can somebody maybe help their cash flow situation?
1: Yeah, so I mean, I, I'll answer it the hard way first, and that is that uh, the types of products that require ocean shipping creates an extra barrier to entry, so they're going to be less competitive and potentially more profitable. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the, that's the good news. <laughs> the bad news is if you don't have the cash flow to support it, you know, you're out of luck. Um, so I, kind of the direction you're going. If you have cash flow issues, you either need to get access to cash or you need to um, do products. That can um, support your cash flow requirements, which, like we've hinted at earlier, may require air shipping so that you can convert uh, you can convert your inventory to cash faster.
2: Okay, so I imagine it's easier to get a line of credit here in the U.S. than it would be, would be to try to get your Chinese suppliers to extend uh, credit to you.
1: Oh, right. No, that's that's an interesting question, um, and I've, I've never I have not explored this for Amazon private label importers, but for um, larger retailers. Uh, the suppliers will sometimes get export credit insurance on longer terms, like 60 or 90 day terms that the retailers ask for. And if the retailer doesn't pay, then the supplier will, through their, the export credit insurance, which typically is a Chinese government organization, will collect against that insurance. Now, uh, so I, it would stand to reason that that may uh, be available for Amazon private label sellers but I don't know how long they would have to have been in business for or other issues mm. for suppliers to be able to get that credit insurance. So I think, I think it would be, you know, some suppliers might just offer 60-day terms, maybe, mm-hmm. but you know, then they're taking a lot of risk. But if they can do 60-day terms and get credit insurance, uh, then I think it's a lot easier. So it's worth asking. It's not something I've asked a lot of suppliers. I should um, ask them that.
2: Yeah, that would be interesting. Do you think that most uh, Chinese suppliers know about expert, or sorry, export credit insurance?
1: I think the larger ones that deal with the larger retailers do. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the smaller, I, I'll say like fly-by-night agents that post a lot of products online that they don't really have that are just going to go source whatever they get inquiries for, uh, they don't.
2: Okay. What are the signs that you might be dealing with a company that's you know, a little bit shady that, that could potentially take your money and run? I know a lot of people are afraid of that when they're first dealing with, with suppliers.
1: Yeah. You know, I think that the and we didn't talk about Shady this whole time. You know, the first thing is don't buy branded products. You know, like don't buy iPhones, don't buy Nike shoes, don't buy Xbox controllers. You know, those companies control their supply chain quite well. Yeah. You are not going to find, you know, cheap versions in China that you can gray market import into the U.S. Uh, and make a killing on. It. So just don't do it. That's probably the first and most important step. After you've done that, another problem that we've seen a little bit and it's just one that you need to be aware of. It's kind of like identity theft. You just need to be aware of it. Um, and this is where the supplier's um, email — well, two things can happen. but basically, you send money to the long bank account. Mm. And there's two things that can cause that. One, uh, the supplier's email account gets fished, and then the fisher sends you an email that says, "Oh hey, our banking details have changed. Send the money somewhere else." Second option is um, employee has left the company, becomes a rogue employee and says, uh, bank details have changed, uh, send the money to a new bank account. So whenever, whenever you get a request to send money to a new bank account, I mean, like triple check it, don't call just your contact, try to find it, independent phone numbers for the company to validate that the, the new bank account is real. Okay. Now in between, Another area that raises red flags for me is Western Union. Most of the buyers that I've talked to say do not pay, especially for an order by Western Union. Maybe samples, but more common for samples is still either wire transfer or PayPal. Yeah. So if a supplier is saying Western Union only, to me, that's a red flag.
2: Yeah, for sure. Okay. So PayPal is a pretty safe option uh, based on their guarantees that they offer from what I've seen.
1: I think PayPal is certainly safe for samples. I've See mixed feedback on what they will do for larger orders. And to me, then it's less about the insurance and it's more about the process we talked about earlier. You know, just do the process right to to minimize risk. So you actually get product that you can sell profitably.
2: Yeah, that makes sense. Do the, uh, get the due diligence all done yeah. initially. So you don't have any of the problems. And later. like I
1: said, um, the verified suppliers on global sources, I don't think you'll have problems with any of them. I mean, if you do send us an email,
2: <laughs> yeah, right. That's perfect. Exactly. So if somebody, um, well, let me ask you on Global Sources, do you, does it show the name of the company as it will appear on the, on the bank account? So that if you are actually wiring money, you know that it's going to the right place?
1: Oh, that's an interesting question. And the answer is two parts. One, the company name that we have on Global Sources is the legally registered company name uh, in China. So part of the answer is yes. But what happens is that the, the company may have other legal entities and you may be dealing with one of the, the subfactors, like if they have eight different um, subsidiary factories, um, or uh, some of them do have bank accounts in Hong Kong and will request you to pay there. So if you have any questions about whether the, the bank account you're paying to is legit or not, uh, just send our customer services an email and we'll, we'll take a look and, and confirm or not confirm.
2: Okay, great. Wow, man, you've, you've answered so many things here. So this is an awesome Awesome podcast episode. It's, it's fantastic. I want to talk about a few, few more things, though. Um, beyond uh, global sources, you also have a trade show. Tell me about that. What, uh, what are the typical show seasons and uh, what are the advantages of our listeners actually going and attending a show?
1: Sure. So we run shows uh, twice a year, primarily in April and October. Each show season has three sets of shows, each show has four days. Our first show is usually an electronic show. We'll have about 3,000 or 3,500 booths of exhibitors. The second show, we co-locate a mobile electronics and a gifts and home show. And the third show is a fashion accessory show. We set up the shows at the same time as other shows, including the Hong Kong Trade Development Council shows here in Hong Kong and the, can- the shows at Canton Fair. So a lot of the, um, the returning buyers or the buyers from the larger retailers, you know, they'll come out for show season and visit multiple shows. And which shows they visit depends on, you know, their needs and what they're interested in. So yeah, we run those every April and October. At this, at this show, in our phase two show, we also ran, uh, which we mentioned a couple times, our Smart China Sourcing Summit, and that was targeted at Amazon FBA private label sellers uh, that were importing from China. We had um, about 16 speakers, uh, got great feedback from it. Um, we covered a lot, a lot of the issues that we talked about today, we covered there from various speakers, along with some case studies, some how to walk the show floor. A supplier panel, and also some information on uh, selling on Amazon. So that's another thing we're doing. We'll be running that again in October, uh, the 17th through the 19th, co-located with our phase two show. But yeah, the shows are great. Um, people ask, you know, do I need to come out to shows? And I guess the answer is no, you don't need to. Uh, but there are advantages that people see when they come out to shows. The first is uh, there are a lot of exhibitors that only go to shows. They don't advertise online. So first, you're going to see new suppliers. Second, a lot of the suppliers don't make product available online because then their competitors will see it more quickly and copy it more quickly. So you're more likely to see new and newer, more unique products at the trade shows. Third, uh, by being at the show, you get more credibility with the supplier because the supplier knows that you've invested to come out to the show and they, they think that you're a more serious buyer then. Um, and then it's easier to get your work in orders um, done with them. So that's kind of half our business is trade shows. The other half is online, which we talked about, the globalsources.com site. And there we have a bunch of suppliers. Um, a lot of them are verified and also a great place to check um, outside of show season to find suppliers that you may want to uh, work with.
2: Okay, great. And what is, so you said uh, smartchinasourcing.com was the, the show within the show. What's the, main, the name of the, the main shows?
1: So the main shows, we call them Global Sources Exhibitions. You can find them at globalsources.com slash exhibitions. And I think uh, one we call our electronic show, one our mobile electronic show, one our gifts and home show, and one our uh, fashion accessory show. But if you Google Global Sources Exhibitions or go to globalsources.com slash exhibitions, you can find details
2: on the shows. Okay, great. So the next show is uh, in October? That's right. Our next show season is
1: in October. And I think I forgot to say all of these shows were in Hong Kong. I took it for granted. Uh, but yeah, next show season is in October.
2: Awesome. Awesome. So, um, and what, what does it cost to go to the shows? So the shows, if you pre-register in advance, they're free. I think for our electronic
1: show, we charge 50 Hong Kong, which is about $8 US um, for buyers if they register
2: on site. Okay, great. Well, this has been fantastic. Any, uh, any other things you want to talk about in, in regards to your businesses?
1: No, I think we covered a lot, but we'd love to see some folks out here in October for our uh, next uh, Smart China Sourcing Summit. We had some really great feedback on the one that we just did. Uh, I can In your Facebook group, I can post a little bit of information about the, the previous one so people can see. I think you saw a lot of the notes.
2: Yeah. yeah, that would be great. Um, so
1: looking forward to uh, seeing folks and, and talking to them when they're out here.
2: Fantastic. Yeah, I, I definitely look forward to meeting you in person. I think I'd, I'd love to go to, to one of the events. What would be the, some of the most important takeaways you think uh, people can take away from this interview at BA Private Labelers?
1: I think that it's really the, the risk mitigation process. And the key thing in, for that, in my mind, is get the samples, put your QC criteria together based on the samples, include the QC criteria with the purchase order, have the supplier confirm that they you know, understand and have seen the QC criteria and the uh, purchase order, um, then pay your 30%, do the pre-shipment inspection, then pay your 70%. Your hammer in this case is not going to court because you don't have a Chinese language contract. You don't, you don't want to, uh, it's not that you don't want to deal with it. It's just a different expense. Your hammer is that 70% payment and you're not going to pay if the QC criteria aren't met. If you do that, you're much more likely to get the level of quality that you want and the detail that you want. Uh, from the supplier
2: excellent well said peter zaff you dropped like a million gold nuggets in this episode it, I, I really appreciate it so much thank you uh for taking God, what has it been a over an hour and a half uh of your time to actually share this with our listeners yeah no
1: my pleasure and i apologize just the last couple of minutes we have some um construction going on right next door
2: <laughs> yeah <laughs> hope, hope no worries Yeah. Through. <laughs> no, a little bit, but I, you know what? The, the information's solid, so it, it really doesn't matter. Um, if anybody wants to reach out and, and get in touch with you or your company, um, where should they go?
1: Um, I think that the easiest way for me, quite frankly, is we've got a Facebook group called Smart China Sourcing. Um, just join that group and I'll get you there. Or I'm in um, your group also. If you just do one of those, what, at, I'm not a social media guy, <laughs> but at Peter Zaff, when you do a post, uh-huh. um, there's a, a very high chance that I'll see it and I'll respond to it there.
2: Perfect. Awesome. Well, Peter, yeah, it does sound like it's getting busy out there and I know you got to get running. So thank you so much uh, for joining me. And um, yeah, I I hope to have you on in a future show as well. Uh, Manny, my
1: pleasure. Thanks for thinking of me and it was great to be on with you.
2: Thanks, Peter. Take care.
1: Okay, thanks. Take care. Yeah, bye, Manny.
2: So guys, I hope that you were taking notes. There was a lot of really, really good information in there. There were some nuggets galore for real i in in fact i learned a few things uh during the interview process that i'm going to be implementing one thing that might be gigantic and i'll be talking about that if i get around to doing it i gotta find some time but hey everybody make sure that you are uh, subscribed to the podcast okay if you're on itunes um, i would appreciate a review that would be awesome if you're liking this stuff uh give me a uh you know multiple stars that would be cool also if you have questions you want to ask me for our Thursday Q&A's um, we appreciate any voicemail messages you can do that again at our ampmpodcast.com site just click on the voicemail link over on the right and last but not least if you have the Periscope app please follow me at Manny Coates and I try to do uh, some Periscopes every single week some video Q&A's Um, where I go in and I answer your questions live. All right, guys, that's it for this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. And I will talk to you guys next time. Take care.
0: You've been listening to the AMPM Podcast hosted by Manny Coates. For more information, insider Insider tools, tools, and to get the resources mentioned in this episode, visit ampmpodcast.com.